Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to talk about the latest and greatest for colon cancer, where MABs, MSI, sideness, and other new controversies. So in case we didn't get to this that last episode when we spoke about chemotherapy for metastatic colon cancer, we really made some great improvements in overall survival. Um, overall survival now for metastatic colon cancer is on average about three years, with many patients doing better. The five-year overall survival is about 20%, which is a great improvement um, in the previous years. Hearing overall survival two to three years doesn't sound that uplifting, but without treatment, you know, we were looking at survivals on the range of six months. So this certainly has improved, and over the last 20 years or so, we've gotten many new medications and drugs and targeted agents with the goal of trying to extend upon this. With varying success, although certainly our chemotherapy backbones, which we talked about last episode, remain the most important tools in our treatment cabinet. As we said in the last episode, for patients with stage 4 or metastatic colon cancer, there's generally no cure for these patients, the exception being patients that have just one or two sites of metastatic disease, patients that we describe as being oligometastatic, who have the potential to have a chemotherapy and um, eventual surgery. But we'll be t- today we'll be talking about patients um, who are being treated for in the metastatic setting. With the other disease sites, there's been an increasing role and interest in improving outcomes with molecular targeted agents. The best example for this is going to be in lung cancer, which we'll talk about in another episode, where we've now developed entire algorithms based on their molecular targeted agents. The evidence for colon cancer isn't as strong, but certainly we've developed a lot of new targeted drugs that have found roles in, in different treatment lines. Today we're going to discuss the most extensively studied and those with the best evidence. This will not be an exhausted list, and there are some molecular targets such as HER2 and TRAC, which are growing in importance, but for the sake of time, and we won't talk about those today. She also mentioned that a lot of these topics uh, have some controversy behind them, They either with conflicting evidence or ongoing emergency, emerging evidence that contradicts prior opinions. Our goal is going to be to attempt to present some data on how these drugs can be used. And we'll leave it to you to take a look at the original uh, literature to make you, uh, your own interpretations, determine how you want to use these in your own clinical practice. So that being said, all patients with newly diagnosed metastatic colon cancer should have their tumor sent for molecular testing whether sent out to a commercial company or some institutions are doing this themselves. For colon cancer, the most important things we look for are the RAS status, BRAF, microsatellite instability, as well as mismatch repair. And this can be critical for choosing your first-line treatment and subsequent-line treatments for metastatic colon cancer. So diving into these targeted agents, the VEGF pathway is one that's probably been studied the most with many tumor sites, but with the most initial benefit found within the colon cancer setting. VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor, and it was became an emerging concept in the 80s and 90s that this molecule played a large role in tumor vascularization and growth. With the development of inhibitors of VEGF as well as the VEGF receptor, numerous drugs were trialed, and the largest one that emerged in the late 90s and early 2000s was bevacizumab. Initially, bevacizumab was looked at as a single agent in colon cancer and had modest benefit. It was then combined with other chemotherapies as found to be safe. Um, a trial in 2004 did demonstrate a survival benefit combining IFL, so this is bolus, erinotecan, and 5-FU and leucovorin with bevacizumab compared to IFL alone. And this found a significant overall survival improvement for patients with a 20 versus 15.6 month outcome. 
as you mentioned, this trial also had a, an arm of 5-Efumbivacizumab, and that was never reported out. So it's unclear um, how that would have done. So looking at this trial, you know, this does sound like a good result. However, it is using an outdated chemo regimen. You know, it is a good result, but if we don't use IFL anymore, is this really relevant to our patients? So this was studied looking at um, in 2008 with the SALTS trial, and this was looking at either Fulfox, so 5-FU infusion, bolus, and doxaliplatin, or KPOX, which is, as we said, capecitabine, which is an oral 5-FU with doxaliplatin, plus or minus bevacizumab. This study did show a modest PFS benefit of about one month. However, there was no overall survival benefit seen. There was a benefit of about one month, 21 versus 20 months. However, it was not statistically significant. So this really is the best study that we have using modern chemotherapy regimens, which again showed a a small progression-free survival, however, no overall survival benefit. So after the SALTS trial, a few other... At least two other trials reported out uh, using modern chemotherapy regimens, one with full theory, one with full FOX, uh, published in 2010, 2015, and we'll have the citations in the show notes. Both of these had shown also an improvement in progression-free survival, improvement response rate, but no significant overall survival benefit. So when we talk about bevacizumab and the VEGF inhibitors in general, some of the main toxicities that we see um, the most common being hypertension, which is not unexpected given that it works on the blood vessels. So you want to make sure that your patient's blood pressure is very well controlled before you start bevacizumab, and you want to make sure you're keeping a close eye during your treatment. Other things that we see are proteinuria, so you want to make sure that you're checking occasional urinalyses uh, during treatment, thromboses, bowel perforation is a rare but can be a devastating side effect, as well as GI bleeds. So given the rare complication of bowel perforation, anyone who presented with um, an obstructive tumor or presented with perforation, probably someone that you'd want to avoid bevacizumab, and as well as patients in a history, with a history of arterial thrombosis. So this is something that commonly comes up in clinic as you know, patients with a history of a stroke or a recent um, cabbage or arterial thrombosis, coronary artery disease, you'd really want to avoid bevacizumab in those patients. Yeah, the, the, the way I look at bevacizumab is that there may be a, a small benefit for a subset of patients. We don't have great targets to say which patients are most likely to benefit from bevacizumab. And although this is a generally well-tolerated medication, it can have rare but severe toxicities. I think it does justice to the patient to be very open to them with what we know about this before um, including them as part of the chemo regimen. Another side effect which I forgot to mention is wound healing. So since it does affect the blood vessels, anyone who had recent surgery, you want to make sure that you pull the bevacizumab for a period of time before and after because it can affect wound healing. Yeah, that's a good point. About how, how long around surgeries do you usually? I believe it's around four weeks. Slightly preceding the emergence of VEGF was the interest and study of the EGFR receptor. So this is the endothelial growth factor receptor. This was one of the first receptors with a molecular uh, monoclonal antibody to target it, um, cetuximab. The endothelial growth factor receptor is going to show up in multiple tumor sites as it plays a fundamental role in cell growth and cell cycle through the EGFR, RAS, RAF, MEK kinase cascade. Colon cancer was thought to have a 
significant role of VGFR in this tumor genesis because approximately 40% of colon cancers overexpress this marker. The thought being that more EGFR leads to greater activation of the RAS cascade. Not known initially when these um, the studies on cetuximab and EGFR uh, had emerged is that there's some downstream mutations that can also play pathogenic roles in colon cancer, such as KRAS and RAS and BRAF, which lead to autoactivity of these downstream receptors. And we now understand that the presence of these mutations would lead to resistance of an EGFR inhibition, and we would not typically use cetuximab or the humanized monoclonal antibody panitumumab if any of these mutations are present. Once again, KRAS, NRAS, or BRAF. Yeah, so unlike in lung cancer, when we test for EGFR, for colon cancer, even though we're using the EGFR on inhibitors, we're really more looking at the KRAS and NRAS status. Specifically, um, the exons 2, 3, and 4, both in KRAS and NRAS, as well as BRAF. So the testing EGFR really has no role in colon cancer. These downstream mutations are not only clinically relevant now, but they're also relevant to how we interpret the prior clinical trials because we didn't know about these initially. So patients would be enrolled on trials, given a cetuximab or panitumumab, and most of the original trials, we don't have any information about these um, mutations, and those that we do are often included in the post-hoc analysis. For the sake of mentioning it, is, you know, these can be high-yield questions that might come up in the future. Post-hoc analyses are after we complete a randomized controlled trial, we go back and take a look at patients with or without a certain marker or some other characteristic, and then see whether or not those factors have an outcome or on treatment efficacy. The limitation here, of course, is that we didn't randomize patients based on those factors, and there can be some possible spurious results as an outcome of this. A major trial looking at Cetuximab was the CRYSTAL trial, which combined fulfiry plus cetuximab versus fulfiry alone, and this did find an increase in progression-free survival, but not overall survival. Similar findings were found using panitumumab in the PRIME trial. Looking at the EGFR agent cetuximab with Fulfox was the MRC coin trial, which was unable to find a PFS ROS. Importantly, when they looked back at the KRAS um, and RAS status, they found that you know patients with wild type did better. And it wasn't only that, it was patients that were mutant actually did worse. So this is not the type of thing where you should just start the penetumumab or cetuximab while you're waiting for your um, molecular profiling to come back. You want to make sure that you know the status before you start because patients that are mutant actually have a worse progression-free and overall survival uh, than when using these agents. So looking at the adverse events of these agents, these are also pretty well tolerated. The major things that we see are cutaneous toxicities, so rashes, diarrhea, hypomagnesemia, as well as infusion reactions. Now it's important to know that cetuximab is a chimeric antibody. I usually remember that as cetuximab starts with a C, chimeric starts with a C, whereas penetumumab is a more humanized antibody. So we generally see more cetuximab infusion reactions than so one thing I would say about these, which I kind of contrast to bevacizumab, is although they don't have as many extreme side effects, they have a lot of nuisance side effects. So many patients can manage on these therapies, but I do find that all of them have some degree of fatigue. There's a high rate of rash, and that can be quite a nuisance. And the diarrhea, which is especially worse for the in the first month or so on this therapy, can be 
can require quite active Imodium use, which may overlap with toxicities in the chemotherapy background. Now, something else that was studied was, you know, if we know bevacizumab works and we know that the EGFR agents work, can you use both, the bevacizumab plus the EGFR agents? And this has actually been studied in at least two studies, and it really showed that there was no increase in overall survival, progression-free survival, and actually a pretty big increase in toxicities, as well as a decrease in quality of life when they looked at these studies. So that's why, you know, we would never use bevacizumab plus the tuximab. In an added uh, wrinkle into this story is the concept of sidedness. And shortly after these trials of EGFR agents were run, um, evidence emerged that evidence emerged that the colon that's proximal to the splenic flexure has different molecular characteristics than colon that emerges distal to the splenic flexure. One of the reasons for this could be that distal colon emerges from the hindgut and the proximal tumor emerges from the midgut. In addition, there's different environmental contacts. The proximal colon is contacting a lot more carcinogens and toxins that come along with the food that we eat. As, the, as this evidence emerged, in vivo studies found that there was a much higher rate on the right-sided colons in BRAF mutations, MSI high status, HER2 mutations. There's been some conflicting data that these may be more aggressive diseases, and this led to the interest to look back at our EGFR-based studies, investigators went again back into their EGFR-based trials and reanalyzed them looking at left versus right-sidedness. And as with the interactions found with KRAS wild type, they found that tumors on the left side consistently appeared to have an increased benefit with cetuximab, whereas tumors on the right side did not seem to benefit from cetuximab. So there were two other larger studies that were also looking at this. These trials were initially designed to see whether or not cetuximab versus bevacizumab improved outcomes when added to the chemotherapy doublet. When these studies went back also and looked at the left versus right-sided tumors as well as the KRAS status, they found the same thing, that left-sided tumors benefited from cetuximab only when the KRAS was wild-type, and that on the right side, bevacizumab benefited as well as in KRAS-mutated tumors. Looking at the accumulated evidence here, we have a lot of trials that had post hoc data showing fairly consistent results in patients who are candidates for either EGFR agents or bevacizumab in addition to their chemotherapy. The general approach is those on the left side, if they're KRAS wild type, can use cetuximab or pantumumab add to our doublet. If they're KRAS mutant, or we cannot use cetuximab or pantumumab, can consider bevacizumab, and the same would go for right-sided colon cancers. I should also mention that the triplet that we discussed last episode, Fulfoxiri, has only ever been studied with bevacizumab alone and should not be considered, or should not be combined with cetuximab or panitumumab outside of a clinical trial. So getting into immunotherapy and the MSI status or the um, deficient mismatch repair status, there is evidence for using immunotherapy in these patients. In metastatic colon cancer, unfortunately only about 5% of these patients will have MSI high or deficient mismatch repair. And this leads to an accumulation of mutations and genome instability. This was initially discovered and investigated in patients with Lynch syndrome, which as we know is a familial um, inherited predisposition to cancer. But as we now know, there are many patients that have sporadic mutations in MSI proteins or deficient mismatch repair. It's worth knowing the most commonly acquired mutation is MLH1. 
Yes, the other ones are MSH2, PMS2, and MSH3. So when you're looking at the pathology report under the mismatch repair, those will be the four ones that are listed. In general, we look at MSI high tumors as being somewhat more chemotherapy resistant. This will come into our adjuvant discussions when we talk about stage 2 colon cancer that's MSI high. But on the flip side, being MSI high could pertain to an increased response to immune therapy because in general immune therapy has been shown to be beneficial in tumors that are have large tumor mutation burdens as well as many new antigens which having genomic instability can lead to. Immune therapy was first studied in second or later line treatment with the approval of pembrolizumab and nivolumab. However, one of the most important studies is looking at pembrolizumab in the first line setting. This was described in the Keynote 177 trial which was just presented in ASCO 2020 which is looking at first-line pembrolizumab versus investigator's choice of fulfoxvolferi plus or minus bevacizumab and cetuximab in the first-line setting. All of these patients were MSI high or deficient in MMR, and the co-endpoints were progression-free survival and overall survival. So this study did show an improvement in progression-free survival with the pembrolizumab arm. The two-year progression-free survival was 48% versus only 19% in the chemotherapy arm. The progression-free survival was 16.5 months versus 8.2 months. We're still waiting on maturity to get overall survival outcomes, but this is understandably a significant improvement with the immune therapy versus chemotherapy alone. There was an interesting phenomenon, and when you look at the clinical trial, take a look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, and you'll see that the patients on immune therapy, as they move into the six months and one-year follow-up, they do have a significant improvement in outcomes, there's a larger number of patients with early progression on the immune therapy arm. This has been seen in other tumor sites as well, and there's a concept of early progression or even hyperprogression for certain tumors, and it may take more time for immune therapy to kick in, and for patients who are having very active disease growth, this delay may lead to adverse outcomes for the patients. Sorry, and as we know from immunotherapy, most of the adverse events are immune-related, so you want to watch out for pneumonitis, colitis, so significant diarrhea, rash, myocarditis, nephritis, thyroiditis. You want to make sure that you're monitoring the, the TSH, as well as some adrenal insufficiency. Now we probably should have a, when we get into the melanoma next, we'll have yeah. some more detailed discussions about this too. I think looking at just taking a step back and looking at this data, I, I, I really do think if you happen to have a patient who has MSI high, you really want to reach for that immune therapy. However, if you see that they're having aggressive disease, a quick functional decline, you may want to attempt to get a response first with chemotherapy and then maybe switch to immune therapy. My suspicion is, along with the lung cancer data, that there will eventually be a potential population that would benefit from a combination of chemoimmune therapy. And I know there's at least one phase two trial ongoing looking at this. So that's probably the extent of what we can talk about in the first-line setting. So keep in mind that your major treatment is going to be with either full Fox or full Fury. Don't forget that 5-FU alone is an effective single-agent drug. For some patients, there may be an advantage of an added monoclonal antibody. And in a smaller subset of patients, immune therapy could be a major part of your treatment. Once patients have progressed on first-line, you have the option to either reach for your alternative, if you use full fox, full fury, or if you have full fury, full fox. But there's also been some evidence emerging to use some more targeted treatments in the second line setting. 
probably the most notable clinical trial at the time of this discussion would be the Beacon trial. So the Beacon trial was looking at patients with BRAF mutated colon cancer. So BRAF, remember, is in that EGFR, RAS, RAF, MEK pathway. It's well known that BRAF mutated colon cancers are very aggressive. BRAF is a target that was already been studied in melanoma, and using a combination of BRAF and MEK inhibitors, we've seen significant improvements in melanoma outcomes. In colon cancer, just blocking BRAF and MEK alone had not been successful alone in earlier trials, as the high level of EGFR on the surface of the colon cancer allowed for alternate routes of tumor activity to still continue. The Beacon trial built on evidence showing that a combination of EGFR, BRAF, and MEK inhibition using cetuximab and carafenib and binimetinib was an effective combination to lead to response. This was a phase 3 trial and had three arms, one using Fury alone, one using the triplet regimen I just discussed, and one using the doublet regimen, cetuximab and carafenib alone. These were all, this was all in the second line after patients had progressed on either full FOX or full Fury. So looking at the outcomes, both of the targeted agent arms, the chemo-free arms, did have better overall survival and overall response rate compared with the chemotherapy. Both of these had about a 9.3 month overall survival compared with the chemo, which was 5.9 months. There is a little bit of controversy that some of the patients in the chemo arm, which was Fulfiri or single agent Arvidotecan plus Cetuximab, if you look closely at the study, some of these patients had already failed Arvidotecan in the past. So this could have biased towards the targeted agent arms. But it is good to have these additional agents as an option in your toolkit. And if I had a patient who progressed on Fulfox or may progress on both Fulfox and Fulfiri, I would consider using combination as these are generally well tolerated and seem to have a, a solid efficacy in the second or third line for our patients. Unfortunately, outside of this second line trial, um, data for other agents in the later lines is, is quite limited. And I think it's always good to keep in mind clinical trials that are ongoing in your area and to continue utilizing those supportive care services that we keep reiterating. There are a couple of drugs that are in our toolkits. One of these are regorafenib, and the other is tipracil trifluoridine. So regorafenib is a VEGF inhibitor, so it's an anti-VEGF TKI. If you look at the data, this was from the CORRECT trial. It really only showed a 1.4-month overall survival benefit, 6.4 months versus 5 months. And this was compared to placebo alone. Some of the adverse events are hand-foot syndrome, fatigue, hypertension, diarrhea, and rash. The tipracil trifluoridine was also a placebo-controlled trial, looking at patients in third line or later. And it also, I think, had about a one-month overall survival benefit. Yeah, 7.1 versus 5.3 months overall survival benefit. And some of the adverse events for long serve, we classically see cytopenias, so you want to make sure that you're monitoring your patient's CBC, diarrhea, and fatigue. It's always good to keep in mind that these outcomes are, are median survival, so some patients are going to benefit more, some are going to benefit less. I think when you have a patient who's highly functioning and is, willing, is interested in having whatever treatments can be available, these might be useful medications. But given that the average benefit is about one month, for some people, moving to a fully sim- supportive symptomatic care approach and limiting their visits to the oncology clinic and maximizing the quality of life might be more preferential. So I think that's it for this episode. So I guess some take-home points. We want to make sure any patient with newly diagnosed colon cancer we're sending molecular testing because this really does impact which regimen you're going to use, both in the first and later line settings. Once again, this is all emerging data, so it'll certainly be interesting to see what comes out. All right, yeah, so in, in, in addition to the molecular targets, um, checking the left versus right side and keeping in mind 
this is proximal or distal to the splenic fracture. I know this will be the third time we say it, but it is a, I find it a very complicated thing to think of, and it's certainly something that's good to kind of wrap your head around, which is left-sided KRAS wild type. You can consider an EGFR agent. KRAS mutant or right-sided tumor, you're going to, if you're going to reach for a secondary agent, it's going to be bevacizumab. And remember to keep an eye on MSI status, deficient MMR status, in which case you may have a, a role for immune therapy. And as we just said with the Beacon study, if your BRAF um, V600E mutated, you can reach for your cetuximab and encarafenib doublet therapy in the second line. And then for the third and fourth line, we have the option of regrafenib as well as trifluorine tiparosyl. However, there are pretty modest benefits to these. So I think this is a exciting field, and there, there's certainly a lot more agents available than there were 10 years ago, and more than compared to 20 years ago. I think we're going to continue to see more targeted agents emerge, and I think it's going to become a tumor site with lots of options available, and understanding the data behind each of these options is going to help you provide the best care to your patients and, and select um, the options that are going to maximize their outcomes and limit, minimize their toxicities. Thanks for sticking with us here, and uh, we hope you stay tuned for episode three, where we talk about adjuvant colon cancer, moving into the curative intent. Very exciting, curative intent. Thanks for listening. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening and see you next time.